1: I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Today, we are honored to have as our guest, world-renowned and award-winning author, biographer, Grammy nominee, editor, lecturer, teacher, and musician, Holly George Warren.
2: And I'm Mary Elkins. In addition to editing and packaging numerous books with Rolling Stone magazine, among others, Holly has written 16 of her own books, including Janice, Her Life and Music about Janice Joplin, which was named Best Nonfiction Book of 2019 by the Texas Institute of Letters. Both Kathy and I read the book, which I loved and consider one of the best biographies I've ever read.
1: And she's appeared on numerous television shows to discuss music, pop culture, and Western Americana, and has served as a consulting producer on several documentary films, including the Emmy-nominated, Woodstock Now and Then, and Welcome to the Club, the Women of Rockabilly Hitmakers, Nashville 2.0. Welcome, Holly, we're delighted to have you as our guest.
3: Mary and Kathy, thank you so much for having me. It's a thrill to be with you guys today. Thank Thank you. you.
1: And tell us about your background and what or who were the biggest influences on your career?
3: Oh my goodness, wow. Um, how, how much time have we got?
1: <laughs> oh, an I, hour.
3: <laughs> I've, I've been very lucky. Um, I did grow up in a really tiny town in North Carolina and I did have some great teachers along the way who inspired me as a writer and to start writing, um, of course i grew up in the golden age of am radio and literally when i was in like third grade i swear i still have this picture in my head of in my bedroom with my green shag carpeting, lavender walls and my pink pastel AM radio, clock radio. And one night, literally I discovered WLS in Chicago and then on the dial WABC in New York because where I lived in the 60s, the radio local station went off at like six o'clock or something. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, this was like bedtime and I'm like, oh my God, I'm listening to this DJ in Chicago and New York City, and they're playing all this amazing stuff. And, you know, that was when you would hear, say, like a song by the Temptations, and then a song by um, Bob Dylan, and then a song by the Beatles, and then a song by the Supremes, and, you know, maybe Johnny Cash or Marty Robbins thrown in, or, you know, Bobby Vinton, and just all this mix of sounds. And I just became addicted to music and started buying 45s with my babysitting money. Um, I just literally would not go to sleep at night without listening to the radio. So that was a huge, huge influence on me. And I started playing in a little band with some of my classmates in like fourth grade. We would also, for fun, um, try to learn how to play pop songs on ukulele. And, you know, I just was obsessed with music at a very young age and i loved outfits too i would try to remember granny dresses Mm -hmm. Um, oh yeah so like i was definitely the mamas and the papas kind of look trying to emulate um those kind of long dresses that they wore so that was kind of the beginning i guess of the flower power kind of granny dress look too and then (laughs) of course i saw janice on the dick cabot show And that blew my mind, you know, like, who is this? What is this woman? Oh, my God, she looks incredible. She sounds amazing. So all this kind of stuff just I discovered because I didn't have an older sibling. You know, I didn't really... You know, people younger people today don't realize how in those days you literally had to just kind of chance upon stuff. There was no social media or Internet to constantly bombard you with uh, visual Mm -hmm. images and new sounds and all that. It was really just this treasure hunt to discover that stuff.
1: Yeah, I had an equivalent thing growing up in California because we all discovered XERB, Wolfman Jack, and he was on late at night from Mexico. He was broadcasting from Mexico, I think. Mexico. Start, yeah, the, the station started with an X. XERB. Yeah, border it was radio.
2: A, yeah. It, it was, was up here was, in L.A. too. Wolf,
1: the well, later, later, uh-huh. later. But this was like really early.
2: Yeah. Holly, you write mostly about music, but we understand that you were a rocker yourself and you performed (laughs) under the name of
3: Holly Hemlock, <laughs> my secret, <laughs> my skeletons in my closet. My, I was actually that was my um, my final band was this crazy all girl punk rock polka band. Um, I moved to New York City in '79 when um, it was still kind of the post punk DIY happening in New York and people like uh, tina weymouth the bass player for talking heads chrissy hind from the pretenders a lot of bands coming up from england the slits the modettes um, the raincoats and a lot of these women you know were self-taught musicians some of them were amazing like chrissy hind and technically but some of them were just more kind of you know amateurist but proud of it so it really inspired me to learn how to play guitar electric guitar and uh started playing in bands in the early 80s and did play in a lot of bands at clubs you know cbgb's max's kansas city um peppermint lounge danceteria a -A 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 lot of cool clubs throughout the 80s so um My final band was Das Verlines. And because we created a new genre of punk polka, uh, (laughs) we became this new sensation. So we were featured in People magazine. And in fact, we've had the good luck of being um, in the issue that was the first, you know, Trouble in Paradise break between um, Diana and Prince Charles. So it was like a big selling issue. (laughs) They were on the cover. And we were on Entertainment Tonight uh, because we were kind of like a novelty group, but we had a lot of fun we had a great lead singer. She used to call herself the white Tina Turner on acid. (laughs) Her name was Wendy Wilde. Sadly, she passed away um, from breast cancer at age 40, horribly. But um, she was just amazing and it was a lot of fun. It was like a roving pajama party. We played up and down the East Coast and Uh, We there was an L.A. band called Rotundi that we used to do some shows with that would come to the East Coast. And it was a very small movement for just a little short window of time where punk polka was a thing.
1: (laughs) And we find punk polka now on Spotify.
3: Well, I don't think we're on Spotify, but uh, Das Furline's my group, is certainly on YouTube. And you can see us in all our crazy glory um, at this club called the Pyramid Club in New York, where RuPaul got his start uh, performing at the Pyramid Club, uh, Lady Bunny. We were often on bills with um, some lots of fun drag queens. And, um, you know, back in the day, you know, LGBTQ wasn't that big of a thing, but it was part of our world for sure. We were part of that scene. We played I at Wigstock, You know, it was wild. I can't
2: visualize what punk polka sounds like. I can't either.
1: That's why I want it's, to hear it. <laughs>
3: well, we would fake the accordion sound on a Vox organ. It would have that kind of oom pa beat, but then it would be uh, merged with kind of a rock and roll thing. And we would write our own songs that had really funny lyrics like polka-palooka, and polka time and Nick's nine frankenstein just these crazy (laughs) kind of lyrics but then we would take famous songs like um led zeppelin the immigrant song and turn it into a polka song or steppenwolf um you know born to be wild turn that into half house you know we'd change the (laughs) lyrics but use the tune you know and that uh remember that lips incorporated song funky town won't you take me to Funky Town, remember that one? We changed it to Take Me to Polkatown. <laughs>
2: oh, gee, that's great! Did so, you play the yeah.
3: guitar? Yes, I played. I used to say I played lead rhythm guitar.
1: Lead rhythm so. guitar. <laughs> <laughs> no Did big big lead licks no licks
3: (laughs) it was it was a lot of fun we and in fact we all met our future husbands that way i met my husband he was playing in a band called the flesh tones and we were kind of their little sister band we would do gigs with them and um, a couple of the other gals in my band Uh, went out with guys in the flesh tones. So it was, um, and we actually met, we're coming up on our anniversary, um, labor day weekend, 1987. We played a double bill together out in East Hampton in the Hamptons. And, um, because it was a busy traffic you know weekend we went out there like two in the afternoon the club had a big barbecue for us and this party for us before the show so we hung out with the guys in the flesh tones and i didn't really know robert the bass player that well but uh, some heavy flirtation started there was some chemistry there because it turns out he was also from the south he was from atlanta and the rest of the guys in the band were all from queens so um we had that in common and after the show, we, our vans drove off into the sunrise, <laughs> but back in the East Village in New York City, we ended up connecting and started going out, and two years later, we got married in
1: 1989. So, Oh, it's so yeah. romantic. I love that story. <laughs> I love that story. And, and also, you're a two-time Grammy nominee, so tell yes. us about that.
3: Well, again, you know, my love of music, um, I've always loved all different kinds of music. So my first nomination was as co-producer of this very cool, I have to say, five CD box set called R-E-S-P-E-C-T, A Century of Music by Women. And it came out in 2000. So it looked back, it, I went. we went all the way back to like Sophie Tucker and, you know, some of the earliest female performers. And through all genres, you know, we had, of course, blues, uh, Bessie Smith, and we had uh, jazz, Billie Holiday, and then all through rock, of course, Janice and, you know, country legends like Patsy Cline, Loretta Lynn, and then all the way up through, um, you know, punk rock, uh, disco, pop, you name it. So is R&B. that still available? I hope it is, but I'm not sure. I'm sure, well, everything's available these days, but it was a very cool set. Um, I worked with, um, I co-produced it with a staff producer at Rhino, Julie D'Angelo, who's still out in the LA area. And it was such a cool set, um, curated all the, you know selections and then i um she and i got some women to write liner notes for each of the sets each of the cds um she found this incredible woman artist who painted um, cover art and we had little postcard it was a beautiful package if you can find it it's got a velvet burgundy cover it's a you know box rhino just used to do amazing projects back in the day and i yeah. in fact You know, some of my dearest friends I met through working on some projects with Rhino, different uh, anthologies. And also I was an editor at Rolling Stone in those days, and I ran the book division. So a lot of my book projects, we would need discographies of artists, say, going back to the 50s. And they were the experts, the guys at Rhino on You know the history of music and they could always provide me with so much information so we worked together over the years many times and all my trips out to la beginning in the early 90s hanging out with these people at rhino it was one of my favorite parts of my uh, career was doing
1: that wow now my
3: second Grammy nomination. We Sadly we lost. Um, we were up against Louis Armstrong's Centennial, you know, so he won that year for the best box set. We were up for the best historical um, album. And mm-hmm. then, you know, fast forward, I guess it was um, about 10 years later i was nominated again for writing liner notes for a set that sony music did called the pearl sessions which was an expanded um, set of music from Janis joplin's famous album which is 50 years old this year believe it or not pearl oh. and they had gone back into the vaults and found all this amazing um, foot um you know tape of her in the studio coming up with ideas for song arrangements guitar parts um tempo changes and you can hear her discussing it in the studio with paul rothschild the producer and i'm like oh my gosh janice joplin was producing this record she was not just this passive girl that came in and sang she had all these musical ideas she was a musician and it really changed my head around about janice so i got to interview quite a few people about her for that those liner notes i wrote and then those were nominated for a grammy this time i lost to ray charles um Uh, but, (laughs) uh. but anyway um some liner notes for a ray charles box set but I did kind of open the door with the estate of Janis Joplin um, and a company, Jam Inc. that handles her licensing and her music to this day. So that kind of led the way to getting to write her biography you know, 10 years later. So it's just crazy how things work out like that. It, it really is. And uh, what you said about
2: her as far as being the musical genius that she was and the intellectual. I had no idea until I read your book about those things about her because i only had the vision of her of singing and you know with the alcohol and being drunk and drug drug addled and but she wasn't
3: that at all yeah and it's kind of like you know i think you might know a little bit about dean martin but you know how um dean would always you know have this persona that he created of this you know lounge lizard drunken guy and you know all that kind of stuff and reality he was like this, you know, savvy entertainer and really smart and incredible musician and shrewd and all that stuff. And the same thing with Janice. She just created this kind of bawdy blues mama persona, and she herself would kind of back it up with the interviews that she did back in the day with journalists but then when i got to um you know really discover the real janice and find out oh my gosh this woman was such an intellect she was such a hard-working musician she loved being in the studio and i can just tell you being an amateur musician myself having played in lots of bands you know, it's such a different thing between being on stage and entertaining and coming up with this crazy kind of exciting stage presence than it is to be in the studio where it just takes patience and focus and persistence, you know, to go through and do these recordings and listen to the tracks and figure out how to make it better and then the mixing and it's this very technical process. And Janice loved both aspects. And she was equally as talented in the studio as a recording artist and as an engineer, a producer. And in fact, Mm -hmm. what was really exciting to me working on the Janice book was finding out that, hey, you know, she was on her way to being one of the rare female producers because, um, you know, back in 1970, when she was recording Pearl, her final album, you know, rarely ever were women not only allowed. Allowed to be producers, but they never got credited either. And Paul Rothschild, who was quite the tough, you know, experienced. Um, you know father figure but authoritarian producer was so enamored by her um, musical knowledge and how sharp she was and what great ears she had that he was really um, saying Janice you should be a producer you should start doing this you know and she was so excited about it so it's- that's so interesting and also what you said about Dean Martin really
2: is interesting to me because I actually worked with him I was one of the gold diggers on the Dean Martin show but on an Another note, besides Janice, you've written and edited books about the Grateful Dead and Alex Chilton and Gene Autry, Martin Scorsese and the Blues, Women of the West, Women Who Rock, The Beat Generation, and so many more. I can't list them here. But do you have any favorites and any stories you'd like to tell our listeners about how the books came about and about your subjects?
3: Well, kind of, you know, my answer which is sounds a little cliche-ish but i have to say it's true it's like my subjects find me and um once i somehow connect with this subject and you know never dreaming i'm going to write a biography of gene autry or janice joplin or whatever i get so into it i just really become impassioned by their passion and wanting to learn more about them and um you know i just want to spend every minute i can researching and thinking about and then later writing about them and they stay with me i mean my first biography was of gene autry which came out i can't believe it's been that long now but it came out in 2007 so it was 2002 that i got that book deal so that was um you know 20 almost 20 years ago which is hard to believe but i still you know love gene autry i'm still curious about him even to this day and um and i guess you know it's what's weird it doesn't seem to be you know what's the you know how can you go from gene autry to alex chilton to janice joplin and now jack kerouac but weirdly enough they all were game changers um they all through their artistry and their careers, they changed our culture in very different ways, but um, our pop culture, but also our culture. So that really fascinates me when I discover people like that because, you know, a lot of people are like, who's Alex Chilton, you know? And I mean, he was a 16 year old boy in Memphis, Tennessee, who just kind of lucked into getting to sing the song The Letter. With a guy, you know, Dan Penn, who had never produced a record before, who became, you know, famous producer songwriter, written by a guy, a songwriter who'd never had a song covered before and recorded, who became a very famous songwriter. So, all the stars aligned. So he became a star at 16. By age 19, he was washed up, and then he kind of reinvented himself. And created a whole new sound with this group called Big Star that sold zero records but influenced so many other <laughs> bands you know everyone from R.E.M. to the Counting Crows to the Bengals to on and on and on so people like that really um fascinate me and I just kind of want to understand how they were able to create these careers and lives in this artistry so you know I guess that's the kind of thing that is you know with all of them that the thread that's between each of my subjects
1: that's amazing yeah. wow because you get so <laughs> intimately involved with all yeah. of yeah yeah and, they and it's all just inspire you and they're all from so different types of music yeah it's yeah. it's
3: like flukes i mean with gene autry again it goes back to rhino you know i mean as a girl i loved to pretend to be a cowgirl. i loved watching westerns on tv western movies growing up And uh, Gene Autry pretty much was out of music and just everybody knows him from the Angels and was a businessman. Thanks to Rhino Records again. They were doing a box set of his radio transcriptions. And um, James Austin, this incredible producer and AR guy there, um, who I ended up working on many projects with, said, hey, maybe I can get you an interview with Gene Autry. He doesn't give interviews anymore but perhaps he will talk to you and i pitched the story to the new york times and got the green light to do a story on him for the arts and leisure section of the new york times got to fly out after much work. I mean, believe me, it was harder to get an interview with Gene Autry than it was to get one with Mick Jagger, you know, and- um, (laughs) You
2: interviewed Mick Jagger too?
3: Yeah, when I was at Rolling Stone, only on the phone, not in person. But um, I did get to go out to LA and Gene and I totally hit it off and, you know got a great interview wrote a story for the times and then that led to my book how the west was worn the history of western wear book that i did in conjunction with an exhibition that the autry museum of the american west was putting on about the history of western clothing because Jean, i was went this, to
1: that wasn't I that amazing that. it was a gorgeous exhibit yeah oh, and yeah. it just
3: you know and then when Jean passed away in uh, 1998 um the estate said hey would you be interested in doing a biography and i made a deal with them like i later did with janice joplin and just recently with the kerouac estate in that yes I, i if i can have complete access to all of your archives permission to quote from your archives but you cannot control what i write i will not grant you editorial approvals i have to have complete um you know Like independence in my coming up with my ideas about my subject and writing about it. And they agreed to that. We get, we, you know, sign an agreement to that effect. So I did that with, you know, Jackie Autry, who is, you know, she was a difficult person to negotiate, but she believed in me and that I would give her late husband a fair shake, which I do really try in my biographies to really capture the whole person, you know, because. A multi-textured person it's very important to me so that's how that all came about and then also my getting to do you know books on western wear and cowgirls and um, in addition to how the west was worn i did a book the cowgirl way and i've met so many incredible people in los angeles that were involved with western wear and design the late amy hoban who mm-hmm. had beautiful california wear embroidered custom you know shirts and skirts and just amazing person and mary basil yeah. who was incredible um embroiderer and just all these people trina mitchum really cool people that I met through these book projects so it's, I'm sure I you met Manuel
1: oh now, yes. my husband and I had a lot of Manuel because, oh wow you know he was managing country entertainers at the time so we always wore a lot of country stuff and beautiful leather and all that beautiful stuff and the shirts that Manuel did were just stunning
3: he the is cowboy
1: cowgirl shirts yeah gorgeous
3: oh, Kathy I'm gonna have to come peek in your closet next time I'm in LA yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: And we know that you've wanted to do a biography on Jack Kerouac and that you've just had Jack Kerouac, a writer's life sanctioned by the Kerouac estate. So tell us about that, how it came about. And is there there a documentary planned too?
3: Well, that's another one of those crazy flukes that literally going back to, you know, you asked early on in our conversation about my early influences as a girl growing up in the small town of North Carolina. And I did discover On the Road, uh, Kerouac's most famous book, when I was about 16 years old. And it completely changed my head around. Um, it opened my horizons both as a writer but also as someone looking for adventure in life, to experience other people's lifestyles that I had no idea what it was like.
1: What's the name of that book? On, On the, the road. road. Oh, OK. On the Road, yeah. Oh. It
3: came out. It came out in 1957 and um i discovered it you know in the 70s but that kind of set me on my path of adventure and leaving north carolina and moving to new york and traveling and going on road trips and traveling around europe and all those kind of things that i used to love to do which i still like to do but um when i was at rolling stone i was the director of the book division for rolling stone magazine so my job was to come up with all the book projects put together a team of people and while i was there i did a book called the rolling stone book of the beats which was an anthology of writing by and about the beats so that included kerouac william burroughs um, allen ginsburg and others and I loved that project and it did really well. It was actually on the LA Times bestseller list. It came out in 1999. And so that was fun for me to go back and again, love the beats, read some of those materials, et cetera. So again, fast forward to all these decades later, my Janice book comes out and in her childhood, when she was 15, she discovered on the road, she was either 14 or 15. blanking now but it was in right when it came out in 57 so that changed her head around she like i got to get out of texas she started hitchhiking around she went to los angeles she went to san francisco she started traveling and that led to her becoming a singer was on the road and so i wrote about that in the biography so the kerouac literary estate remembered my book from the 90s and then they read that you know jim sampus who's the direct the um executor of the literary estate right now he read the janice book and like wow they reached out to me through their agent to see if i wanted to have access to all of Jack Kerouac's personal you know, correspondence, his journals, his notebooks, where he wrote down ideas. And again, giving me access to go through all the archives. I can quote from things, but with no conditions, you know, I can write whatever I want, uh, no approvals. So we made an agreement just like I did with the Joplin estate and also with the Autry estate. And then I wrote a book proposal, which is a very lengthy process. You have to do lots and lots of research, and it took months over. This was what I did during my pandemic Uh um, while I was, you know, in my house. And um, I'm very excited because I got a book deal with Viking, who is the publisher that originally did On the Road back in 57. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's very exciting. My editor, Paul Slovak, has been an editor uh, focused on beat writers and Kerouac for 30 years. So he's, like, super top mm. side in the field so he'll be my editor so I'm really really excited about it So again it's just you have to be careful what you're into when you're a kid because it it comes back into your life it's it's amazing Perfect. right
2: yeah that's, that's a great philosophy I'm gonna have to think <laughs> on that one. I have a few questions for you one you sort of answered which is why you want to write a book on Jack Kerouac but also, Tell us why Kerouac matters these days, Mm. and also being a woman, you'll have a different approach to it, I would assume, than the male authors who've already written about him
3: in the past.
2: What are your thoughts?
3: That's a great question, Mary. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I really, um, again, I've been a reader of Kerouac's work since I was a teenager. Um, So, and I've read On the Road, for example, three or four times and his other works, and re his work at different times in my life, it's really meant something different to me. Now with our cultural changes, um, with a lot of the attitudes now that we have, as thank goodness, um, you know, our culture is becoming more enlightened about uh, marginalized people, about the treatment of women, by, um, you know, these, the patriarch, you know, the patriarchal culture. You know, I'm approaching his life looking through that lens, but also really looking at the writing. And at the time when his book came out in 57, it really changed the way literature um, was, you know, accepted in our culture. Like at the time, it was very experimental. It was very groundbreaking. He had a lot of critics, but his one of his major influences was... on rock and roll on music people like bob dylan would not probably exist if not for jack kerouac um he was very inspired even dylan's most recent album that came out in 2020 a name checks kerouac um Hmm. he you know he continues to influence even new generations of artists which is in every genre so i think a lot of it is his freedom of expression um the way he again thematically would try to explore things that were outside the mainstream and things like that now you know there are some things about kerouac's writing now that we definitely take issue with i mean things that we don't uh, approve of the way he would um refer to some marginalized people that he loved you know, it was for him a positive, but the way it comes off today Mm -hmm. sounds um, not derogatory, but just more just um, not appropriate. Let's say it, let's put it that way. So, Mm -hmm. you know, so I'm gonna have to put everything into perspective. But the other thing I'm really excited about is um, exploring these archives, because believe me, this guy was just so prolific. So much of his writing, we still haven't even seen He kept a journal beginning at the age of 14. He was a um, profligate letter writer, so his correspondence is amazing. And, you know, sadly, he suffered from, you know, really severe alcoholism and died very young at age 47. And Mm -hmm. he started to deteriorate in the 60s. He really did not handle fame at all very well and you can even see weird parallels with people like even with um janice in fact i just found out about um the the great um poet gary snyder who's um a californian who introduced um, buddhism back in the 50s um to our culture and his poetry reflected his Buddhist beliefs and he was a great nature lover and he and Kerouac were great friends. Kerouac very much admired him. And I just recently saw an interview that he gave in the 1970s where he compared Janus and Kerouac as far as that they had so many um, demons, but part of it was like, their passions for their art was so great it overwhelmed them and they couldn't control it it just kind of took them over and they ended up you know janice you know with alcohol and then horribly for accidental heroin overdose and then kerouac also with um you know alcohol addiction ended his life at age 47. so Mm -hmm. so there's going to be a lot of interesting things to look at so i'm very excited about the discoveries that i'm going to make and just kind of re-looking through the lens of today at his life and work.
1: Yeah, and you've also been involved with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and have been a consultant and lecturer on popular music and Western wear at several museums. So tell us about that.
3: Well, again, um, I just kind of lucked into some of those things when I was at Rolling Stone. I ended up meeting some of the curators at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they found out I was this total geeky, you know, (laughs) rock nerd who loved rock and roll history and read, you know, rock and roll history all the time. And so I ended up um, getting to work on projects again. Actually, that was another way that the Janice thing came about was Mm -hmm. all the way back to the 90s. They did a um, kind of really cool symposium on Janice Joplin in Cleveland at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I got to go to that and meet. um, her siblings and some people that uh, had played with her, Sam Andrew, who's sadly no longer with us, her guitar player for a long time. Anyway, so getting to participate in things like that um, led to some great book projects. But at the same time, I love working on music history. I lo- I've always been a history nut, so I've enjoyed working with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Um on the induction book every year. I'm the editor of that book. So, you know, the induction is going to be in October this year. So I'm just finishing up that project. And then I've also been fortunate in that I'm on the nominating committee. So I'm one of those people everybody hates who um, comes up with Uh um, people that we think should be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And then there's a much wider voting base of, you know, several hundred people that do cast the votes when we come up with like say 15 candidates so i get to do that um
1: and what a again, treat that's such an yeah. honor
3: yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, this year is very exciting. There's a great slate of inductees this year. It's going to be really cool. And it will be broadcast on HBO in November, HBO Max. So people can watch it. Oh, great. We'll we'll be
2: watching. Uh, Recently, the U.S. Postal Service called upon you to be a consultant on their new stamps, which will celebrate the enduring legacy of Western wear and the accessories of the American West. We understand you have an extensive collection of Western wear yourself. Tell our listeners what you did for the Postal Service and also
3: about your collection. Well, that was another one. Like, what did I do during the pandemic? I was shocked to get a call from... Um, the people that were kind of behind the making sure everything is accurate because they always do like an info sheet on whatever the subjects of their stamps are and then as they work with their designer and the artist who renders the stamps they want to make sure that they're accurately depicting whatever it is so they got to you know they sent me the sketches and some draft copy. so i got to weigh in and you know throw give them my two cents worth and um again i've just it's just been kind of a hobby for me again going back to my teenage years growing up in north carolina i bought my first pair of vintage peewee remember the little peewee ankle cowboy boots with like a snub toe black with like little white filigree inset designs um and started buying vintage western shirts in the 70s i was really into that i loved the flying burrito brothers and graham parsons and that whole look and um again it just was a hobby of mine it was just i have like i said i've always loved the fashion thing and it turned into this big deal because i met this woman michelle friedman who was a graduate of parsons a fashion historian a designer so through her i learned actually about the real history of fashion and how these things are made and how they've changed so we teamed up and did the how the west was worn book so that was working with her on that project uh, really schooled me. It was like getting a master's in Western wear history. And um, I've been able to write for other publications over the years. So luckily, my name's been out there. So people contact me about stuff like that. So it's that's been very, very exciting about that. So, well, h- How many pieces of clothing do you own that are a the oh my God! Yeah, we well, see. I say, doing how the West was worn, what gave me license to shop, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, that's when eBay was first getting going too. So, oh my gosh, I started buying um, nudie suits. You know, nudie the rodeo tailor. Um, people from the North Hollywood area might remember his great uh-huh. shop on uh, North Lancashire and he he is the most famous of all the custom rodeo tailors. And um, so I started looking and scouring for his stuff. And then also Turk, another one who was out in the valley, rodeo bin in Philadelphia. So altogether now I have tried to like wean myself, but um, if I find a good deal, you gotta pick it up, right? Um, I don't know, at this point I've got probably, gosh, I don't know, maybe 30, or 35 of like pieces by garments by the custom tailors. I kind of got on a mission to try to have one sam one representative of everyone in our book. Huh. So I pretty mm. much I think I have now at this point. Um so And again over the years i've been very lucky i got to work you mentioned manuel before kathy um there was a wonderful exhibition on manuel at the frist museum in nashville that traveled it went to the cowgirl hall of fame and museum and and fort worth it traveled around um so i got to work on that a little bit write an essay for the catalog for that and other um exhibits over the years so it's you know keeps inspiring me to keep shopping i don't (laughs) actively seek stuff out like i used to back in the early aughts but um luckily i was able to find a lot of good pieces and some of my pieces were in an exhibit at um the museum of the berkshires up in massachusetts um a few years ago so that was kind of cool and then my Very and nice. the boots too, I think I have, I think at this point I have 37 pair of cowboy boots, something like <laughs> that.
1: <laughs> cool.
3: Most of which just sit on my shelf and I look at them, but uh, I still wear them. There's certain pairs that I like to wear a lot. The comfortable ones.
1: And in addition to your work, you have a family too, right? Tell us about them and, and tell our listeners who have full work schedules, how you manage your work around your family time.
3: Well, I have a very indulgent husband and a very supportive son. And um, as I mentioned, my husband is a musician. He's also a writer and an editor. He's actually working on a book right now about Johnny Cash. It's going to be published Hmm. in 2022. It's a collection of um, writings about Cash and interviews with Cash from the 50s all the way up to his passing in 2003 i think it was um that's coming out next year chicago review press and he's also written novels so he reads all my work and gives me lots of editorial advice and helps me when i get stuck i like, i can't think of how to write about you know he'll literally help me come up with sentences and you know he's great and very oh how
1: nice to have a a editor in the house
3: And he's an incredible musician, so I get to hear lucky him sitting around you. playing guitar and singing and he's a great songwriter, so I'm very lucky. And our son is a filmmaker. He just graduated college last year. And um his name is Jack Warren and my husband is Robert Burke Warren and they both have websites um and so jack warren uh, is now making films Uh, he graduated from wesleyan university in the film department last year during the pandemic so it was a virtual graduation Mm. but um in fact one of his films his senior thesis film is going to be in the hudson valley film festival next week that's Um, fantastic so yeah so and he's been very supportive and the poor kid since he, I took him when he was a baby. He went to see Wanda Jackson and Steve Earle. He went to Riders in the Sky, the Western band. So he's been going to see music his whole life and played music for a while himself. But he really wants to be a filmmaker.
2: Oh, that's great. Fabulous. Uh, as a writer myself, I'm always on a quest to unearth a great writing process. What is your process? What, do you sit down in the morning and write all day? Do you have a certain amount of hours you write? Um, do you adhere to the schedule?
3: Um, I wish I could be disciplined enough to write every day. And um, sadly for me, you know, I've You've gotten the idea that I love history and I love talking. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. interviewing people. I love doing what you guys do. I love interviewing people and talking to people. So, for me, um, it's the interview process and the research process that I will spend a lot of time on early on in the book project. But I will try to get little small um, writing assignments along the way just so I don't get rusty, you know. Um, You know, I still do the occasional liner notes or articles from magazines and things like that. So I try to keep up my writing and then also editing, too. I think editing other people's work, especially good writers work, really helps me as a writer. So I try to keep all those skills kind of sharpened. But then when it comes time to actually sit down and write the book, which for me is the horror time (laughs) because that's when it's just you're all alone in the room you and your laptop you know and yeah it can be torturous but basically my little routine is to try to just get up drink coffee start thinking about what i want to write that day and i try to one of my tips is when I'm writing a book, I pretty much write it chronologically, although I always write the introduction at the end. <laughs> but I will try to, when I finish one chapter, I'll try to have a little something going on the next chapter. So I never have to look at a blank page on, you know, a blank screen that I always, even if it's just scrapola, there's something there that I can look at. and Maybe I'll completely rewrite it later, but something. So that's what Hemingway get used into? to do. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Well, it's, you know, I just watched that really great Ken Burns documentary on Hemingway. I don't know if you saw that, but I do love hearing um, about other writers and some of their techniques and how they get over these stumbling blocks. And one thing that I do try to remind myself and a a dear friend of mine, um, this great photographer named Melon Tytel, who was very good friends with the great photographer, Robert Frank. She was struggling over a book she was writing once. And Robert Frank said, come on, Melon, it's not like you're writing the Bible, so I try to, you know, just like try not to let it loom too large in my head. Like, okay, just one foot in front of the other, one chapter at a time, one paragraph at a time to just not get overwhelmed and just not, you know, not to freak yourself out with yeah. with the enormity of the project, because that can be, that can paralyze you, you know, yeah. and I just try to sure, remind sure, that's myself,
1: great advice. It's you know, great yeah, advice for yeah, yeah, Mary, and- you got some good advice
3: i was just going to say being an editor sometimes i think can work against me because i have gotten to edit a lot of brilliant writers and then i'm always judging my own writing against others and raising the bar so i get i'm very very self-critical of my own work so that can also be paralyzing. But mm-hmm. I try to, again, talk myself out of that. I'm like, just get it down. You can always go back as a process. It's like sculpting. You know, you start with like this slab of marble and you're chiseling away until you finally get you know, David, right? <laughs> Holly, I have one more question I'd like to ask you. How do your books change you?
2: How do your characters that you meet who may or may not be alive when you work with them, how do they change you as a, as a person?
3: Gosh, that's a great question, Mary. Um, I think, you know, sometimes it, the my subjects, how much they have to sacrifice for their, you know, art and you know, for their career. It really helps me put things in perspective, um, so that I mean, I don't have the ambition that they had, and I. Don't want to give up so much, maybe say, of my personal life and things like that. You know, you were asking me before about my family. So I think to be able to, you know, balance my family with my career is really important to me. And I sometimes it, it just, they're kind of like almost like a lesson in what can happen to you when you're not able to balance that, um, especially when you get so involved in that person's life and you see the hardship and the heartache and struggles in their personal lives that they have to go through. So it kind of helps put things in perspective, you know, to be, it helps me feel pretty good about just balancing things. And I don't care if I'm like the top, you know, female Stephen King of biography writers or whatever, (laughs) that kind of thing.
2: Our guest today on Late Boomers has been the celebrated author, Holly George Warren. Look for her next book, Jack Kerouac, A Writer's Life which is planned to be in bookstores in 2025.
1: And Holly can be reached at her website, hollygeorgewarren.com. Just run it all together in one word. And thank you so much, Holly.
3: Thank you. Well, well, Mary and Kathy, I so appreciate y'all having me on the show today. And I look forward to seeing you in person, I hope, one day in the future. I hope it's
1: the very near future. And to our listeners, please follow us on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and on our Late Boomers Instagram. Also, please please write us some feedback on our website, lateboomers.biz, that's B-I-Z, and tell us what you're enjoying. We want to serve, inspire, and entertain you.
2: We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.
0: Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. Go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.